Hello. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Open Space for Monday, June 8th, 2020. Of course, I'm Fraser King, publisher of Universe Today, and I am going to hang out with you for an hour and talk about I have no idea. That's up to you. It's not my problem to figure out the topics for tonight. That is your job because I have no guest. So I'm just going to ramble on whatever topics you want. You want to talk about the latest events happening in space and astronomy? You got it. You want to talk about my opinions about the latest events in space and astronomy? No problem. You want to talk about exploding starships, not exploding starships? Either way is fine by me. Um, uh, just to also let you know, just a point of order, uh, we have a new QA coming out. We almost had it out the door, and then we realized a horrible mistake that I had made, and so we had to fix a big chunk of it. So uh, it should be, we're probably going to release it again, probably later on tonight or first thing tomorrow morning. And I don't think you'll know what the problem was and how we fixed it. And you will never know. Um, but, uh, and also just to let you know, we are going to be not doing an episode of the Weekly Space Hangout, which is going to be on Wednesday. And this is part of the solidarity for uh, the STEM, for Black Lives Matter. And uh, so everyone is sort of going on strike for Wednesday and not doing um, any of the science outreach on that day to uh, let your feeds fill up with, uh, with other voices. So we're going to get out of the way and let other people be able to um, be able to control the social media feeds and the YouTube feeds. So Wednesday, and we're also going to be um, uh, probably not releasing any any stories, anything on Universe Today on Wednesday. So again, just to let other stories fill your feeds, as opposed to my constant nattering about space. But we'll be back on Thursday and Friday and so on. Um, and then the other thing is, um, as you know, I go on hiatus every summer. So from for July and August, we don't do any of the live streams. And that's the open space, the virtual star party, the, um, uh, the weekly space hangout and astronomy cast. So we take a break on uh, starting around July 1st, and then we come back in September. And the main reason is just to recuperate from doing four or five um, updates, uh, you know, live shows every week. It means that I'm sort of tied down to high speed internet. I have to um, make my way, you know, I have to be sort of trapped near a computer and a high speed internet connection every second day. And so it's okay for 10 months out of the year, but for two months of the year, I want to have a little more flexibility with my time. Now, we'll still be releasing a whole bunch of, um, you know, the guide to space and the question shows that all continues unabated. Still lots of stories on Universe Today, but I won't be doing any of the live streams and I won't be involved in any of that for July and August. And we've been doing this for a decade. And I promise you, I it just replenishes me and just makes me more excited than ever to to be doing this job. All right. Uh, let's get into the uh, today's show. So Neil, you asks, Fraser, what do you see happening space wise in each of the next five decades? Man, that's a great question. Um, I mean, obviously, we have no idea what the future holds. Um, and the near future over the next 10 years, we're going to see a bunch of these missions that are already in the works. But it's going to be huge and exciting just over the next 10 years, we're going to see the Vera Rubin telescope 
come online, which is going to be one of the telescopes that I'm most excited about. We're going to see another big data release coming from the Gaia Space Telescope. That's the one that's found a billion, you know, is tracking the positions and locations of a billion stars across the, the Milky Way. It's going to be finding probably tens of thousands of planets. So suddenly we're going to know of another enormous chunk of planets. The um, the very the extremely large telescope is going to be coming on online. The the Magellan Telescope, the 30 meter telescope, all these are going to happen in the next 10 years. James Webb is going to be launching, and so sort of all the stuff that's that's in deployment right now. Starship is probably going to fly at that point. We're going to see so many things happening over the next just 10 years, and it's all in the works right now. But over the next, say, 20 years, two decades from now, then we're going to start to see some of these more conceptual ideas. We're probably going to see you know, some next generation telescope after, like the Louvoir telescope, the HABEX, some of those big scopes. We're going to probably see next generation gravitational wave observatories start to come online in the 2030s. We're going to see missions to Europa with the Europa Clipper and the JUICE mission. Um, we're going to have probably by, <clears throat> I think by 20, into the 2040s, I think that's when we're going to see the first footprints on the on Mars. I mean, we're going to probably see someone go back in the 2020s, but you know, maybe even it may take all the way to 2030s. Um, and so 2040s, I think we'll start to see Mars and then like all kinds of spacecraft, right? I'll bet you we're going to start seeing space assembled telescopes. We're probably going to see a fairly significant presence on the moon, a permanent base that's going to be inhabited in the way that we've got a permanent base, say in Antarctica or the International Space Station. Um, by 2060, I think we'll probably see then, you know, after we're gonna after the Europa missions, we're probably going to see, say, um, lander missions to Titan, we're going to see a return to Uranus, Neptune. Um, <clears throat> I, I think by the 2050s or so, we should see a fairly significant robotic presence on almost any place every place in the solar system asteroids comets planets moons i think it's going to be they're going to be so inexpensive to launch with thanks to starship that we're going to see significant stuff out there um and then i think by 2070 i guess that's the next 10 years we're really going to see that the future of the human presence in space i mean at this point we're going to be harvesting resources in space we're going to be um manufacturing things in space uh and so i think we're going to start seeing this infrastructure start to really build up in space and that's just going to be the beginning of the next era what comes after that i mean it's the future is too far to see at this point Easy Tiger 10, I wonder if dark matter will be debunked in the next decade. So, uh, no, no, I don't think dark matter will be debunked. At this point, the, the multiple lines of evidence that show that dark matter is a real thing are just overwhelming. So many different individual lines of evidence. And, and we talk about this in the question show that's going to come out shortly. And someone said, the problem with dark matter is it's just got a bad name. No one has a problem with neutrinos right? The name neutrino makes it just sound like a particle. And, and for the longest time, nobody knew what they were. They were just as it was theorized that there were these very lightweight particles that were coming from the sun. It explained certain mysteries in solar astronomy. And yet it took decades and decades for people to actually be able to 
um, to to measure and find them. And that's the situation with dark matter. Again, bad name. But if we had a different name for it, maybe the evidence that this exists is overwhelming. And astronomers are narrowing down the 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 aspects of it. So just the opposite, I hope that we will find compelling, a much better answer for what dark matter is over the next decade. And it will stop being this mysterious thing and start being this this known that we have, um, you know, we're going to know what it is and have a lot more of its attributes. But but again, this is this is the mystery. We're in the middle of the mystery. There's a bunch of these mysteries that are going on right now. Um, what are fast radio bursts? We don't know. They seem to be coming from outside the, the Milky Way. They are uh, bright. They don't seem to repeat, except the occasional one does. Um, we're learning a little bit more about them every year, and probably within the next decade, we'll know exactly what they are. And, and we get to stand here now at the end of all of the hard work for all the generations of scientists that have come before to figure out these mysteries. We know how what lightning is. We know how the tides work. We know how the sun produces energy. We know how the continents formed. We know how life changes over time. We understand how the universe is expanding. All of these discoveries were made by hard work by scientists, bit by bit, piece by piece, filling in the mystery. And and yet here we are in the middle of mysteries and it's weird that people find this uncomfortable. I find it wonderful. We, we, we get to be a part and watch like, a, like we're watching just a nail-biting sports game and we don't know what the outcome is going to be. Particle? We don't understand gravity? Um, is it really going to be, um, you know, uh, does it really not interact with itself? Can we produce it in a particle collider? Can we detect it via gravitational waves? I don't know. I'm on the edge of my seat. Let's find out. So uh, I find it's, I think it's very easy for people to just kind of dismiss these things that are that have mountains and mountains of evidence. And, and for you to be able to dismiss it means that you have personally done the research to be able to overturn all of the evidence that has been accumulated so far that this thing exists. And I don't think that that's a thing that you can say. And so until then, hang back, uh, trust to a certain extent that the experts are thinking about this very deeply and are attempting to explain it as quickly as they can. And I love it. So Robert Shaw, who will carry the Mars torch after Elon? I, I mean, I think that, that the way SpaceX has been created, uh, you know, it's a private company. There's no plans for SpaceX to ever go public, although they're probably going to, going to spin off Starlink itself as the, as the public arm of the company. Um, the goal of SpaceX, the purpose of SpaceX is to colonize Mars. And that is, that is just baked into the corporate culture of the entire company. You talk to people from SpaceX, they know why they're there. Their job is to help humanity become a multi-planetary species. And that is the plan. And so if Elon Musk, uh, for whatever reason, passes away early, uh, you know, decides to settle down and just focus on his family, um, then there will be uh, close to 10,000 people working at SpaceX who are going to continue carrying that torch. So I wouldn't be too worried about the future. SpaceX is, is obviously, Elon Musk is very important. He is the, 
he is the the face and the best part of the brand. But at the same time, there are so many incredible people who work at SpaceX who know what they're doing. They're working on the technology of making reusable rockets that I wouldn't really worry too much about what's going to happen. Um, Figginshow87, do you subscribe to the simulation theory? I, I subscribe to the simulation theory in that I think it's a pretty compelling idea, this idea that that as, over time we make better and better computer simulations and so it makes sense that that we could possibly be living in a simulation um but uh there's no way to prove it or disprove it at this point there's no way to prove it so we just have to assume we have to pretend or act like like life is real we have to assume that life is real uh, until shown otherwise and the same thing goes really for any um, be it a mystical, uh, supernatural explanation for the universe, uh, the answer is still the same, which is, you know, whether the universe is, is uh, deterministic, right? Whether it's such a thing as free will, it feels like there's free will. It feels like, like the universe is real. And so we have to live our lives accordingly. Um... Uh, a. Mitty says, do you have a PhD in astronomy? No, I have, my degree is in computer science, uh, but I have been doing, I've been running astronomy cast, running, sorry, running universe today uh, for 21 years now. Um, so I've been doing a job of being a science journalist, a space science journalist for over two decades now. And so all of the stuff that I'm saying is essentially me uh, regurgitating the knowledge that I have pulled out of the minds of all of the astronauts and astronomers and space scientists and, and such over the decades that I've been interviewing people. So, nope, I don't have a degree in astronomy. I, I'm merely a fan. But they're too busy being uh, astronomers to have time to do the science communication side. So that's the thing that I do. But I definitely, you know, there are various uh, space scientists, astronomers watch the work I do. And I know I have a lot of friends there who would call me uh, and tell me if I'm uh, saying things wrong. So hopefully I'm not saying too many things wrong. Um, building with Todd. Hi, Fraser. Do you think it's possible for advanced civilizations to be hiding in the infrared? I asked because I saw a movie recently where they dabble in the idea. Um, that's interesting. What's the movie? Can you tell me what the movie was that you were watching where they were dabbling with that idea? It's a, it's an interesting, um, uh, idea. So the, so the kind of, the thing, the assumption that we make when we think about alien civilizations out there is that they have to obey the laws of thermodynamics. Like that's like when people ask me questions about aliens, like the, the first rule that I have to have that I just, we got to agree that these aliens live in our universe and they have to obey the same laws of physics that we do. Because if they don't, then, then it's pointless to have an argument, a conversation, anything, right? It's like, it's like do angels have to use infrared? Have, can angels live in the infrared? Well, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? It doesn't matter. It's magic. So, it doesn't, so, so if, if you're going to assume that aliens use some sort of magic technology that we aren't aware of, that the laws of physics don't apply to them in the ways that we understand, there is no way that we can speculate about what the future holds. But if alien civilizations live in our universe and they have to obey the same laws of physics that we seem to see out there, then we would... Um, 
then then there are a few really basic things like entropy increasing, like the laws of thermodynamics that even they would need to do it. And sort of the classic example that we've talked about many times is this idea of having a, you know, you have a Dyson sphere and the Dyson sphere completely encloses the star and you would be able to see the um, you'd be able to see the, the Dyson sphere because it would, although it would be absorbing all of the light coming from the star, it would be emitting all of that light in the form of infrared radiation out into space. And so you would see that infrared and the super weird, bright infrared source that we would be able to, to spot. And so in fact, uh, astronomers have gone looking for these bizarre infrared uh, signatures out there, which would be indic indicative of um, of a Dyson sphere, and so far astronomers haven't seen that. And so people say, well, what if the aliens hide their heat, right? And that's like saying, what if you you're in an oven and you try to hide the heat in the oven so you don't get cooked? If you have a shell that contains a star, the temperature inside is going to increase, and if you don't get that heat out, then you are going to cook. And no matter what you do. If you want to enclose it in another shell, doesn't matter. At some point, you're going to cook until you get that heat out into the universe. And so could you um, uh, hide in the infrared? It would, be, it would be tough. You would need to um, have some place that is, you'd have to let off your heat in a very careful way. You'd have to shift all your heat radiation into into this you know into the infrared and try to match the heat signature of something that you're around like hiding inside of a nebula or something like that that's at the same temperature and i i don't know what sort of the scale of it would be possible um but sort of in general if you are using energy and then you're releasing heat it's giving off a signature that should be detectable in some way and a good example of that is like you know say a ship is is some attack fleet is on its way to earth and they've turned their ships around and now they're firing their their fusion thrusters to slow themselves down so they can go into orbit and steal our water well we would see this very bright heat signature from their drives as they were decelerating themselves and we would have advanced notice especially if we had some object that was looking in this you know we had some telescope that was observing the entire sky all the time so so I, I, I will, I'll be interested of oh, Cosmos. Uh, okay, Cosmos. I've, I don't think I've even heard this movie. I'll check it out. That's awesome. Uh, I love science fiction. I just don't mention, I don't use it for my science. Um, uh, Arjun, let's say that Elon is ready to go to Mars in 2025. Will he be allowed to send a mission or will someone stop him? What should ideally be in place before a mission? Uh, yeah, by 2020, I mean, there's no way he's going to be uh, able to go to Mars by 2025. That's pretty soon. But let's say that Starship gets rolling and they're able to do it. Would anyone be able to stop him? Sure. If someone wanted to stop him, they would just arrest him and then he wouldn't be able to do that. So the question is, would they have any legal is there any like law that Elon Musk is breaking if the if he wants to send people to Mars and they're not exactly 
Uh, there are some rules in the Outer Space Treaty that define how people can go to other places. And right now, the way the Outer Space Treaty is defined, you can't own anything out in space. So if Elon Musk was able to land spaceships and start building um, bases on Mars, he wouldn't own the land where the bases are, and he wouldn't be able to stop anyone from... Uh, he would be in a violation of the Outer Space Treaty if he didn't allow people to come and use his bases. That's one of the rules as well. Is you have to essentially provide access to other people who want to come into your facility. So uh, there are, it's right now, there's really no rules of ownership. And here on Earth, of course, rules of ownership and, and, and property rights and stuff are a big way that we define the economy. Who gets to do what, where, with what resources? And none of that exists on Mars. And then I think from a practical concern, there are uh, contamination issues about life. And so he would, if he didn't want to get in trouble with the government or with NASA or with other countries, he would have to probably negotiate and be very clear about what his planetary protection plans are. But, but I don't really know. I mean, right now, the, the planetary protection rules are defined by the space agency to say, yeah, we all agree that when we go to Mars, we're not going to you know, we're not going to infect the local populace with um, the local uh, biome with our cyanobacteria. We're going to attempt to minimize our impact on the environment. And there's really great plans to doing this. You, you send your you send your spacecraft to some very desolate place that's clearly doesn't have any life on it. Maybe something that has bare rock, and then you slowly. Uh, scout out around your area to just create a bigger and bigger perimeter of space that you're sure is dead. And then that's where you live. And you don't have to really worry about it at that point. And, and you can you can build up a much a very large protected area. And then outside of that, you use different requirements as you move out, you know, you for in terms of planetary protection. But but right now the rules are super unclear. I think if if Elon Musk was ready to go to send people to Mars and he had a ship and people were on it, um, I I he would he would have to fulfill the obligations of the the FAA for being able to launch safely um, and the FCC for any transmissions that were being done. Um, and some international requirements. But beyond that, I don't think there's anything that would stop him legally from taking people. And then, of course, when you get to a place like Mars, there's this term, right? Possession is nine-tenths of the rule law. So if he actually does get to Mars and starts setting up, like if you want to stop him, then you're free to try. Um... Let's see. Sorry, I'm just looking for more questions here. Um, there's a bunch of good ones here. Um, okay, so uh, Building with Todd is saying the movie is called Cosmos. So I haven't seen that. Whoa. Some questions that I don't have the answers to, so I apologize for people. Um, I'll go back a little bit here and find another one. <clears throat> Uh, Gwim says, if you could name a space program, which name would you choose? Have any favorites? Yeah, Starfleet, obviously. Uh, space Force is pretty cool, though. I got to admit, I like the name Space Force. Uh, it makes sense to, to, to go with the other branches of the military. But, I, you know, obviously from Star Trek, I love the idea of, of 
Starfleet. And hopefully that would set the right tone that, that they would be trying to build with the military branch of the, the space military branch of the United States. But, um, uh, but Space Force is pretty cool. But then the question is like, what do you call the, the people in Space Force? And I know they're calling them, I think, spacemen. Um, I would go spacers, which I think is better. It's gender neutral and it's awesome, right? Spacer. That just sounds so cool. So that's the one I would go for. Rick W, can light travel faster or slower than the speed of light, say if it gets a gravitational assist from orbiting black holes? So no, as long as light is fall is, is moving through a vacuum, light always goes the speed of light. And that is the, that's the whole point. That's what relativity is all about. This idea that, that no matter where you are, no matter how you're observing light, any place, if you see light moving, you see photons moving, they're going to be moving the speed of light. And if you are moving close to the speed of light and you see them, they're going to be moving the speed of light. And if you're sitting on a right at the edge of a black hole in an immense gravity well, and you're looking at light, it's moving the speed of light. And in order to make that work, time is the thing that has to change is that you, uh, you experience different amounts of time so that light will always move the same speed. Easy Tiger Tan asks, why are we not still not sending people up and taking people back from the ISS in small gliding capsules to land on a runway? Uh, there are some, I know there's the dream chaser. So there are some small gliding capsules that are in development and we could see the dream chaser fly, but it won't be carrying humans. It's going to be carrying fuel. And I guess it's going to be bringing it back down to, uh, it's going to be bringing stuff back from the station back down to earth and it's going to glide to a landing. So that's definitely in the works, but there's not this just, when you think about the kind of technology that's required, there's a certain amount of just simpleness with a capsule with parachutes. Um, like it, it, as long as it has the right orientation as it's passing through the atmosphere, it, it bleeds off the heat. And then it hits the thicker part of the atmosphere, deploys its parachute, and then just, um, just comes gently down to the earth and then fires its little thrusters right before it lands. And then the astronauts walk out. So we've seen, uh, how risky and dangerous something that has a complex shape like the space shuttle was the Columbia accident in 2003, uh, killed seven astronauts and it was almost entirely because uh, the leading wing was was smashed and by a chunk of foam falling off of the off of the the uh, the fuel tank and then as the space shuttle was coming back through the atmosphere hot gases were able to enter into the uh, into the wing and and destroy the the orbiter so a capsule is just so simple and, and that's what you really need is something just super simple. And the dragon is reusable. Now, I'm not sure that we'll see dragon in the near term, crew dragon carrying people back up to space on multiple flights, although that would be great. And I'm sure eventually that SpaceX will pitch that or maybe other astronauts will fly on them. But um, uh, the, 
but but I think that that you know that is going to be that's going to be the future of just like we it was figured out <laughs> the Soyuz have been going safely to space. If getting human, the top priority is to get humans to space safely and get them back down to Earth, then the capsule with a parachute is your way to go. Um, all right, so uh, Bobby Reynolds asks, uh, <coughs> what if a white hole enters our solar system? Um, and then what part of Earth did, uh, did, uh, did Thea hit? So uh, with what part of Earth? I mean, it's too long ago. We don't know. I mean, people, astronomers are still arguing about whether or not uh, it was a Mars-sized object hitting Earth that caused the moon. So where exactly did it hit? Uh, it hit so hard that it liquefied the entire planet and turned it into a ball of magma that then cooled again and formed a, 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 a sphere again. So whatever evidence is of that impact is long gone. Um, regarding a white hole, I mean, Right now, there's no reason to believe that white holes are real things, that they actually exist. And the thinking goes that if a white hole even does, could exist, the moment anything got into it, it would collapse immediately. And so uh, beyond that, you know, if you sort of, that's all I know about white holes. If you want to go farther than that, you, that's above my pay grade. Um, let's see. F0, if von Neumann probes can self-replicate, then where do they get their raw materials from if they're in space? Well, they don't. They have to wait until they get to a star system, and then they find the moons and planets and asteroids, and then start dismantling them and turning that into the raw materials for the von Neumann probes. So you would imagine von Neumann probes, their strategy would be you would you would land in a star system with your spacecraft. You would set up some kind of factory. You would be <clears throat> gobbling up all of the raw material that you can find in the solar system. You would then be uh, blasting out new von Neumann probes out to other star systems. And you'd be pointing at every star system that you can see, and you'd send a stream of spacecraft. And each one is a factory, right? Each one, and the closest analogy we have is like, just imagine like a virus, right? You send a virus, or a virus sends itself, it, it, it can't do anything until it gets into the host body, and then it manufactures more of itself, gets into more host bodies, and manufactures more of itself. And so von Neumann probes would be doing the same thing. Raphael Dominichini, isn't Space Force a military uh, organization? Are you happy with the militarization of space by a single country? Uh, well, define happy. I mean, I'm not happy by the militarization of anything. I mean, obviously, my preference would be that there would be no military whatsoever. And yet, I understand that that based on the current political regimes in various places, that people think that they need to have a military. Um, and the militaries rely heavily on space, and it's not just the United States. I mean, the Russia has has space operations. They have uh, uh, reconnaissance satellites. Canada has a space presence, right? We have uh, access to reconnaissance information. We have navigation systems. We have various satellites that are that are launched by Canada. Pretty much every major nation on Earth has some amount of space militarization already. The existence of, of space force is merely just to take 
all of these separate pieces that were being done a little bit in the army, a little bit in the Air Force, a little bit in in the Navy and to bring it under one agency. There's nothing really that new in, uh, you know, in in what Space Force is doing. And every country has a has as I mean, the way the way I always describe it is that space is already literally as much militarized as is permitted by the Outer Space Treaty. That the thing you're not allowed to do is put weapons in space, not allowed to put nuclear weapons in space, any kind of weapon of mass destruction. But beyond that, space is heavily militarized. There are plenty of satellites flying overhead that are completely classified. What does the X-37B do? We don't know. It flies for the Air Force, I guess now for Space Force. And what it does is a mystery. So, um, so if you think that there's not going to be militarization of space, I mean, there has been militarization of space for 50 years and, and there will be forever. And it makes sense as more and more of our existence moves out into space that there will be a military. Now I'm not happy about it. I wish that you would, that the United States would buy less aircraft carriers and buy more space telescopes. But, uh, but I, but I think it's perfectly natural to have a, Space Force, right? That that if you're going to have any kind of military for your country, you're going to need to have a certain amount of that military is is dealing with this new domain, space. Yorn uh, Albert, have you read the Bobiverse books? Of course. I've, there's an even in, one, an open space on this channel is me interviewing the writer of the Bobiverse books. So hopefully somebody can put a link to that in the chat. Um, or I'll put it in as a card after the episode. Um, from Sir Goosey, what if the speed of light is not a constant? What would be the impact on astronomy and science in total? Just want to hear your thoughts. Well, um, I don't know. Then everything that we know is wrong. That would be that would be the result of everything we know about about the distance to things. The the, the way, uh, you know, computers, we think we know how computers work because they're, they're, they're somewhat dependent on the speed of light. Turns out they don't. It's just magic. People were able to make fiber optics work through magic and not through technology. So, so no, lasers, think about lasers. I mean, every single part of our, uh, of our society is utterly dependent on the speed of light being the speed of light. And so if it wasn't, then that would be pretty tough to explain how our modern society works. And the only answer would have to be magic. You thought that the GPS satellite systems worked because light moves at the speed of light and, it, and with their, they're sending out time codes and your phone gathers all those time codes and calculates its exact position on the surface of the earth. But it turns out we had the speed of light wrong and you've got magic gnomes inside your cell phone that tell you where you are. And the satellites are just, they're totally unnecessary all the time. And he says, can't confirm computers are magic. Okay, well, yeah, there you go. Yeah, I mean, sometimes they are magic. So who knows? Darren Clark, is Planet X a myth? I never grew up with that. Uh, yeah, Planet X is a myth. So, and when I say Planet X, I mean this uh, conspiracy theory that's on the internet that says that a mysterious object, Nibiru, planet 
X is going to be passing through the solar system and cause the Earth to flip on its poles and, and cause a new great awakening or something. Um, yeah, total myth. And in fact, one of the things that I and other science communicators have been battling for 20 years is this myth. Uh, you can go all the way back 20 years ago and see us saying, nope, there's no such thing as Planet X. Um, and even like back in 2012, we're like, nope, there's no problem with 2012. Well, you know, here we are eight years later. Uh, the world didn't end. Now, 2020 is pretty bad. Not going to lie. But, um, but, but 2012 was fine. 2013 was fine. So uh, why do these videos exist, right? Why do these conspiracy theories exist? Why do they get hundreds of thousands of views, millions of views on their videos while I get 5,000, 10,000? Because uh, they make stuff up. That's why, because they'll make up whatever is designed to get people most excited, most scared, most distrustful. Uh, they'll, they'll plug and, and tug at every single uh, vulnerability that the human mind has in it to get you to react in a, um, in an emotional way to this information as with pretty much all conspiracy theories, they're designed, you know, they're like, they're like viruses that will attempt to exploit every natural human thing to get you to take action, to send the money, to buy their books, to, to, uh, send links to your friends that telling them that this is boy, this is really real and really scary and so on. And, uh, it's unfortunate, but what can we do? Right? We just keep explaining science, just keep sticking around, right? I will outlive planet X. That's my plan. So yes, it's a myth. Um, Sean Marson asks, Hey Fraser, can you please talk about how the James Webb Space Telescope will better help us view planets in a star's habitable zone. Thanks. Sure. Um, so the James Webb is going to have a higher level of resolution than pretty much any other telescope that's out there until, say, the extremely large telescope shows up in 2026. And James Webb has a coronagraph on board, which is going to allow it to block the light from the star that it's looking at and be able to actually perceive directly the planets that are orbiting these others, these other stars. So you're going to go from right now when we observe planets, we see the, the dip as a, um, as a, as a planet is passing in front of the star. And so we know there's a planet there because the light from the star gets a little bit dimmer and a little bit brighter. But when James Webb comes online, it's going to look at the star block, attempt to block the light from the star and actually be able to see the planet itself. So then once you can see the planet, then you can do things like you can try to measure its atmosphere. Are you seeing large amounts of oxygen? Are you seeing some kind of evidence of photosynthesis? So once we can actually start to observe these planets directly, uh, all bets are off. It's going to be pretty exciting. Uh, I guess as a follow-up question, Gwen, what is the most frustrating science or space myth? I, I don't really care, you know, um, they come and they go. And so they all have the same, they all have the same signature, right? Which is that somebody 
generally you can tell it's a space miss because someone feels the need to proselytize it. So they, they show up in my chat or they show up on the, on the comments of my, of my videos and they say a bunch of stuff, right? And, and they're not genuinely wanting to hear an answer or response. They're just looking to get into a fight. That's how you kind of know that, that there's a new science myth making the rounds. Uh, the ones, of course, that are most frustrating are the ones that are genuinely harmful. Uh, it's not a space thing, but I think about, say, anti-vaccination people. That's really dangerous, right? We, people die if, if we lose faith in vaccines and we see the rising cases of measles because various groups of people have, have been able to successfully freak enough people out about the efficacy and dangers of vaccines that it's actually causing people to, to die. And we're going to see as a vaccine for the virus rolls out, people are going to not believe in it and they're going to be trying to release conspiracy theories. And in many cases, the people releasing the conspiracy theories are doing it just to sow discord, right? When you are being, uh, when someone is attempting to infect you again, back to that idea is if these conspiracy, these conspiracy theories are designed to tug at every vulnerability in the human brain. And often their goal is to divide human beings and they work very well for that. And so I think that we're going to see this uh, real danger as, as actual vaccines come on the market that other people are going to be trying to freak people out and make people mad at, at each other as they always do. So um, I would say that is, that's the one that's scary. Is anything that is, anything that is actually going to cause people to die are very bad science myths. Um, UK Bengali. Okay. Planet X is a myth, but is there something pulling Neptune? Right. So the, so the, the, once we have the myth of planet X aside, then we've got the science of planet nine, uh, depending on who you ask. Um, I don't want to get into a fight with either the, uh, the new horizons folks or, uh, Mike Brown and team. Um, but essentially, uh, Mike Brown and Constantine Batigan have been calculating the orbits of all of the objects out in the Kuiper belt. And based on the way those objects are moving, they seem to have, uh, some kind of underlying gravitational influence that is pushing them around that matches the gravitational signature of some object out in the outer, outer solar system. And whatever this thing is, it's going to be big enough to influence all of these objects with their gravity. But at the same time, it's, um, it's far enough away or it's dim enough or it's dark enough that, that we can't, that so far it hasn't turned up in any of the surveys. And that's not, completely surprising. Uh, the farther things get from the sun, the less light falls on them and the more powerful a telescope you need to be able to find them. And so the instrument that is like at this point, astronomers have, have carefully scanned huge chunks of the sky where planets are most likely to be seen, which is this idea of the, the plane of the ecliptic. So when you look at all of the planets in the solar system, they all line up in in roughly the same plane. Some are a little higher, a little lower. And so you, you move, uh, you know, you scan that band in the sky with the most powerful telescopes you have to be able to try and see if there's anything moving in that area. 
but obviously that's only a small segment of space itself. And so if you did have an object that was a highly elliptical orbit, then you wouldn't notice that it was there. And so that's the possibility. And the solution to this problem is going to be the Vera Rubin telescope, which comes online in the next couple of years. That's going to be scanning the entire sky at a very faint level. And it's going to be looking for comets and asteroids and Kuiper Belt objects and supernovae and anything that the universe does when we're not looking. And so I wouldn't be surprised in just a couple of, of years, we're going to planet planet uh, nine will be discovered. And who knows what else will be found. It's in many cases, these discoveries just come with the new instruments and the new observatories. So we're, we need a new telescope to unlock all the next big sets of questions. So stay tuned. It's going to be, uh, again, I'm so excited when the Vera Rubin telescope comes online, when Gaia releases its next data set, when James Webb launches, when the extremely large telescope gets built. Oh man, Perseverance goes to Mars and has a helicopter. Oh, it's so good. Um, <laughs> a Medi says, can you explain in detail how coronagraphs work? Yeah, I can. Although I did a, I did a web, uh, did an episode on James Webb and I feel like I talked about chronographs and we are working on an episode about the Habex telescope. We'll talk about it there, but essentially there's two parts. So the purpose of a coronagraph is to block the light of the star to allow the, um, to allow any planets that are around the star because they're millions of times less bright than the brightness of the star. And so any star, any planet is going to be lost in the glow of the star and it's going to be very close to the star. So you need a way to block the star so that any faint objects around the star can be brought up. And so there's two methods to do that. So the one method is a chronograph that's actually inside and earth-based telescopes have this and, and space-based telescopes have this and, and the, the physics are, are kind of above my pay grade again, but they essentially have a, they, they block the light from the star, but then they also sort of move the light through these gratings that allow it to sort of remove every little part of the starlight that's coming through and still maintain all of the area that's around the star to be able to observe any planets that are there. And so when you look at some of these pictures, of other planetary systems, things with say Alma or the very large telescope, you'll see this disc in the middle and then all this cool stuff that's around it. And you wouldn't be able to see all the cool stuff around it if you didn't have that disc in the middle that was blocking out the star. So that's the one way. And then the second way is they have this thing called, um, and this is still sort of theoretical, but this idea of, um, uh, of, of a, uh, a sunshade. So you take this, this spacecraft, it looks like a big, uh, flower and you fly it like 10,000 kilometers away from your spacecraft. And then the center of the flower perfectly covers the star. And then the shape, this shape around it turns out is really good for being able to block any of the light that's sort of coming around from the edges. And then will help you reveal any planets that are going around the star. And there are no star shades that have been launched so far. Um, but there are, um, uh, there's plans maybe to try and launch one with W first. And if not, there will for sure be one launched with the Habex telescope in the 2030s. So, um, but again, we did, if you read, if you see the episode, I'm trying to remember which one we did. We did one where we go into how a coronagraph works quite a bit. Uh, I apologize. If you do a search for coronagraph on my channel, you'll probably find an episode about it. 
Um, all right. Damien Reloaded. Uh, NASA finds a solar system with spaceships traveling between planets, say 20 to 40 light years away. Would this unite the nations of Earth to face a possible threat? Wait, are you saying that the spaceships are on their way to us? Uh, 20 to 40 light years away? I mean, it all depends on the speed. Um, this concept was covered beautifully in the three-body problem. So if you're looking for a book that covers this exact idea where where humanity discovers an alien fleet on its way to Earth and they're going to take a couple of hundred years to get here and humanity has to get prepared. Uh, it deals with this idea and it's, it's an incredible book. I highly recommend it. Um, but I don't want to spoil how it works. Uh, so, so if you want to have your mind completely blown, I highly recommend you read the three books of the three body problem and they talk about that. So I think it's the same thing. I mean, like, there are threats that we know of right now, things like climate change, um, that we are not all in, that has, has not united humanity. If anything, it has divided humanity. So I think we can use that as a model for uh, how we would behave in case of detecting an alien civilization. Some would want to try and defend ourselves. Others would want to roll over and capitulate. Others would want to try and figure out a way to evacuate the earth. And so I think that we would have the exact same situation if we saw an alien fleet on its way, which is just seems to be the way humans roll. Uh, <laughs> um, let's see. Google Sky Winged Star. I have no idea what that is. Uh, Gwim. Uh, oh, here we go. Okay. So Sierra Vortex. Stupid guy. A new guy question here. But would a gas giant have a rocky surface in it at all? Uh, well, it's important to understand what a gas giant is, right? A gas giant is a ball of hydrogen and helium with other elements inside of it. In many cases, like Jupiter has many times, like maybe five times the mass of Earth in rocky material inside of it somewhere. But a gas giant like Jupiter is not just this fluffy ball that you could just fly your spaceship and like a puff, you know, and just go through one side of it and come out the other side of it. Once you get down through the cloud tops of Jupiter and get not very deep into it at all, um, the pressure and the temperature starts to increase and increase and at, at a certain depth, it's like, and not very far, like, like just a couple of hundred kilometers into Jupiter, it's as dense as water. And then you go deeper than that and it's as dense as rock, right? And you go deeper than that and it's as dense as iron. And so this idea that the core of Jupiter is this metallic hydrogen, you've got hydrogen that is crushed together with more pressure than we're able to do here on Earth. Astronomers have, or scientists have been trying and maybe they've been able to make metallic hydrogen in using the most advanced uh, like vice possible. And so imagine that's what's going on inside. So are there is there rocky material inside Jupiter? Almost certainly. But don't worry because hydrogen itself has been crushed into a metal. So land on that, which you can't because around that is hydrogen that's as dense as rock and hydrogen that's as dense as water. So it is a is just a very uh, dense object and not that you could just fly through and puff out the other side. Uh, Brandon Warren, did you get your name inscribed on the silicon chips headed to Mars via Perseverance? I surely did. Yes, I did. I hope you all did. That was so cool. We could just 
just passed along our name and then we got our boarding ticket, boarding pass, and we're off to Mars. So yeah, my name is going to be on Mars uh, where the aliens will, will find it or the future civilizations. <laughs> Tropical Tom, if we make contact with intelligent extraterrestrial life, should we attempt to hide the fact that many of our species eat pizza covered with a bromeliad? I like pizza covered with a bromeliad. That's, it, I think it's, maybe that's a Canadian thing. Uh, it's weird to me that people have fight about pineapple on a pizza because I think pineapple on pizza is awesome. I think pineapple is awesome. That's my sadness is that I can't grow pineapple here in Canada. I can grow apples, but I can't grow pineapples. If I did, I would just grow a mountain of pineapples. Pineapples and watermelon. Um, UK Bengali. Fraser, how can it be possible that the core of Jupiter is hotter than the surface of the sun? Well, the, the sun, it is the surface of the sun. And that is the point that the sun has cooled down. Like at the core of the sun, it's like 30 million Kelvin. And then you've got the radiative zone, and then you've got the convective zone. And all this time, the sun is attempting to cool itself off, trying to get material out to the surface of the sun where it cools off. The surface is defined by the place where it's cool enough to escape off into space. While Jupiter, I think it's like 30,000 Kelvin at the core of Jupiter. I'm just, I might be making that up. Um, and so you, uh, you've got all this pressure and temperature. Jupiter is trying to be a star. It's just doing a terrible job of it. it you need another 77 Jupiters to have enough temperature and pressure at the core of Jupiter to start being a star. Scott Whedon, what fields do metallic hydrogen generate? So astronomers think that the magnetic field that surrounds Jupiter, and Jupiter has a huge magnetosphere, something that's far more significant than anything we have here on Earth, is generated by this ball of metallic hydrogen that's inside Jupiter that is turning and is acting like a dynamo. Here on Earth, we have a ball of metal of, of nickel and iron that's r rotating. And in Jupiter, they have this ball of metallic hydrogen that's turning and it causes this dynamo causes this magnetosphere to surround it. Oh, man, R. Jones says what sci fi books that you like would make a great movie. There are too many to to name and I can't name any off the top of my head. I would love to see I know apparently someone's working on a three body problem, which would be great. I can't wait to see that. I think the thing that I just want in general, I love to see science fiction stories adapted to television shows and movies. Tele they work, seem to work a lot better as television shows, like with The Expanse, although The Martian was pretty good, although The Martian would have been a pretty good TV show as well. So, um, but the thing that makes me sad is all of the budget that goes to big budget blockbuster superhero movies, right? Uh, Star Wars movies. Uh, I would like to see people take more risks on original adapting original book ideas to shows. And you're seeing a bit more of this. I mean, you saw, um, there's a lot of pretty cool science fiction that's being adapted to, um, to Netflix and to Amazon prime and to HBO. And I would just like to see more of that. I mean, when you think about how much budget, how much entertainment budget, something like, um, uh, you know, Avengers Endgame just gobbles up. Um, you would 
just imagine how many other interesting experimental science fiction stories could be told. I'd love to see the culture series, Ian M. Banks' culture series turned into, into TV shows. That'd be cool. Um, uh, yeah, there's just, there's too many. And every time you read a great book, and I think, I mean, I think we're seeing with Game of Thrones, HBO learned that you can take a very complicated, uh, beloved fantasy epic and you can turn it into a very successful television show, possibly one of the most successful television shows of all time. I hope that other people were taking notes that you can do that and that it works well. Um, and there's, uh, there's tons of value in that. So I hope that's what I hope. I would just like to see more variety, more experiments, more new stuff, less of the same old superheroes beating each other up for $400 million. If, I mean, I know I'm going to sound like a heretic, but if I don't have to see another star Wars movie, that's fine with me. Um, I would rather see 10 cool science fiction books adapted to, to a television, to, to television series like game of Thrones was. Zach, what is the most likely answer to the Fermi paradox? It depends on who you ask. If you ask me, the most likely answer to the Fermi paradox is that we are all alone. Uh, Darren Clark, do you have anything in space named after you? Yes, I do. I have an asteroid named after me. Uh, Larry Beckham, did you see Isaac Arthur's video about turning Jupiter into a star? No, I haven't. Uh, I'm guessing it has something to do with adding 77 more Jupiters to Jupiter. Or pulling material off of the sun and feeding it to Jupiter. That would do the trick. Um, whoa. Haas, have you seen the the, the video Astartes? No, I have not. Uh, Scott Whedon says, seriously, Black Mirror, all kinds of cool stuff. Yeah, exactly, right? Black Mirror. Think about how Black Mirror just just came out of the, came like a bolt out of the blue and just was suddenly this most wonderful speculative stories. I'm so excited. Every time new black mirror is ready to go, time stops and we gobble them up. Um, think about Rick and Morty, uh, man, every episode of Rick and Morty. I mean, it's literally the first thing that we, the second we can, we watch Rick and Morty. Think about the expanse. Every time the expanse drops, now the expanse drops on, on Amazon. I promise you from the moment the expanse drops to when we're finished is however many hours of duration it takes for us to watch it because they're so good. So I, uh, I would like to see more of that. All right. I want to probably get to the end and start wrapping this up. So thank you everybody for joining me here on, on my channel. I hope you guys enjoy this. We've got a new, um, question show that's going to probably be dropping later on tonight or tomorrow. Um, uh, thank you to all of the moderators. Thanks to everyone who's watching over on Twitch as well. I do appreciate that, uh, that the stream is being simulcast in both locations. Hopefully I'll be able to take that over next, uh, next season. But, uh, again, there's going to be four more, three more episodes of open space. We've got a guest next week which will be, uh, I'll be announcing later on. Um, and then a couple more episodes and then we'll go on hiatus through July and August. So, uh, I really appreciate everybody hanging out with me and, uh, have a great week and we'll see you all next week. Thanks everyone. How do I stop this again? All right.